Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Writer. We've got some bills filed today. We'll be discussing Savannah Maddox, representative out of uh, Dry Ridge, files a bill to lower the age of gun possession of being able to own and conceal carry a handgun down to 18. We'll talk about where the laws are now and what practical effect this will have. Liberal school leaders are hopping mad at the Kentucky budget because, well, it doesn't have their raises in it, despite the fact that these same liberal school leaders literally were arguing how unconstitutional the measure was just a few years ago. Maybe they didn't realize it. We'll go over that. And finally, we've got another DEI bill filed, this one from Jennifer Decker out of the Shelby County area to deal with DEI once again in college universities. The Herald Leader article on this really shows us exactly what we conservatives are up against when it comes to the media. On top of that, well, it just goes to show how this focus on public universities, while grand, is not our real problem. We'll be talking about all that today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Of course, the big news of the day on the national level, and I don't often talk about national politics, but I did have something here locally to coincide with it, is that Ron DeSantis has announced he's suspending his presidential election and has endorsed Trump. And I got to say, I, I respect the guy for doing that. And the reason why I say that is because a few months ago, probably... I don't know, four or five, six months ago or so, I was actually invited to attend a fundraiser for Ron DeSantis. Now, obviously, I didn't go to donate money or anything else, but it was an intimate event, and I was invited out to be able to uh, just hear what he had to say. And, you know, one of the things he said that struck me, and I was wondering if he was going to follow through on it, would was that he would be withdrawing if he didn't get at least 25% of the vote in Iowa. He said he's putting a lot of work into Iowa. They're spending a lot of time on the ground campaigning. And if he didn't get anywhere close to 25%, he didn't see much of a path for himself. And I didn't know if we would continue to see him in this race or not, if, if he was going back on what he said, or if he was sticking to the statement he made when I was at this event. Well, it looks like he is sticking to it. Of course, he didn't come close to 25%. So he's dropping out and supporting Donald Trump. I think the primary for president is all but over, of course, the support going to Donald Trump. I sure hope he doesn't at least pick up Nikki Haley. People who listened to my show last week know how much I dislike the weird type of liberal Republican that is uh, represents about 20% of our voting electorate. People wonder all the time, how does McConnell, how do these people, who do they represent? Well, I can tell you they represent this 20% elitist class, you know, liberal elites and Republican Party elites. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them conservative elites because there's nothing really conservative about them. They just have different opinion on what to spend money on. That's about the only difference between them and liberal elites, but the elitists have one thing in common. They believe they can tell us how to live our lives. They believe that they can tell us what to do with our time, with our money, with our efforts, because they just are so much better and just know better. That's what 
you hear from these elites and you hear the same thing on the conservative side as well. I mean, a lot of the hate, not conservative, but Republican side, a lot of the hate, of course, for Donald Trump comes from the fact he didn't take that typical political route of biding his time. No, he's a business leader that then threw his hat in the ring for politics, threw his hat in the ring to get involved and and fix some things that he saw that was wrong. And they hate this. They They really don't want people like you and me a part of the political process. And this 20% is deeply at work within Kentucky. You know, one of the ways that we've seen that 20% trying to enact their differences or, or at least enact their beliefs is going out and finding some of the most liberal candidates out there. Now, I've talked obviously previously about uh, Vanessa Grossel running against Sherilyn Stevenson, a Democrat there in a district that encompasses a part of Georgetown and a part of, of well, Scott County and Fayette County. And I pointed out the fact that if you are a conservative, if you're a Republican, you're better off not voting in that election. You're better off not throwing your support behind any of them. And likely, I would never ask you to vote for a Democrat, but likely Sherilyn Stevenson will end up winning then. And that's actually better for you if you're a conservative. Why? Because we have what, 80, 81 Republicans in our state house? You know, a Republican gets to do things. They can propose amendments that see the light of the day. They get to engage in arguments. They're, they're a part of the majority. But most importantly as well, if they do the bidding of leadership, if they curry the favor of leadership, they are rewarded with something called committee assignments. And only when you have a Republican majority, only Republicans get to chair committees and head up committees. And the chair of standing committees during sessions can solitarily on their own decide to kill bills by not allowing them to have a hearing in the committee process, which prevents them from coming forward to the floor. That's why you're better off with sometimes a Democrat in a seat than a liberal, awful Republican, because, well, quite clearly, that liberal, awful Republican isn't able to uh, eventually get enough power where they can stop bills, good conservative bills, and enact their liberal legislation. A liberal Republican and a Republican majority legislature is going to be a lot more effective at destroying our liberties and destroying our conservative values than a Democrat making up only 20% of the state house would ever be. But we see other races where this is happening, where we're seeing very liberal Republicans, this this uh, weird, not weird group, this different kind of group that doesn't necessarily represent the traditional conservative values. And I think it's a misunderstanding of what the difference is between a quote-unquote liberty Republican and a conservative Republican. That's what I call us, conservative Republicans. Some of the uh, media and the people that be call us the liberty cadre of Republicans. They, they put me and others into that group because we want to see less government involvement overall. But however, they like to take that belief and run with it and think somehow that means that we don't believe in conservative values or we don't believe that uh, government should be doing things like, for an example, take abortion. And that's what makes me turn to Josh Calloway's race uh, there in the E-Town, Hardin County area. Recently, the Hardin County Republican Party put out a resolution supporting Josh Calloway against a Julie, I, I believe her last name is Demeter, Demeter, uh, that is running against Josh Calloway in that House race as a Republican in the primary. You know, Julie's known for obviously having uh, supported Andy Bashir during the governor's election, uh, proudly here sporting a Republicans for Bashir t-shirt. 
she here she is holding up a sign supporting obviously uh, abortion and and women being able to get abortions and and those who would challenge her on this obviously she'd claim look i'm all about freedom and personal responsibility however the disagreement here comes from the difference between a conservative republican and a non-conservative Republican, I guess you'd say, and you can really see it on something like abortion. Because the Liberty Republican or a person who claims to be a Liberty Republican would say, look, you know, government shouldn't be telling us to do with our bodies at all. And generally, I agree with you. Or the problem becomes when you look at abortion and say, uh, you're murdering somebody. I think all of us agree that government shouldn't be telling people to murder people or allowing people to murder people. I think that's probably the last thing we need to be concerned or, or to be worried about our, our, our rights being encroached upon my right to murder somebody, um, which is non-existent a right to just outright murder somebody. But regardless, these so-called people who, who want to self-identify as Liberty Republicans, they're not conservative or really Republican at all. They're just identifying in a certain way that they think makes them seem, I guess, edgy or different, even though when hard pressed and challenged about what they agree with on the Republican Party platform, the conservative family values, well, they probably come up pretty short. But with that in mind on conservative values, Maddox has proposed a bill on lowering the age to conceal carry a handgun here in Kentucky down to 18. We're going to talk about that after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Kubrater Show. If you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. We'll see you back here after a few short minutes. And you're back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Savannah Maddox, well known as a proponent of the Second Amendment, has proposed House Bill 259, which would lower the age of being able to conceal carry a handgun down to 18. So first, I think we need to explain exactly where the laws are. And I, I think first we got to look at the federal government. So up until, uh, what, 1968, I believe, 69-ish, uh, anybody over the age of, well, 18, could own, possess, purchase firearms. Then when, you, uh, when it came to 1968, some federal laws on buying handguns changed and basically stating that a federally licensed gun dealer, so a person with their FFL, could not sell a handgun to anybody under the age of 21, period. And the main driver behind this, like most early gun laws, was racism, is racism. And it makes a lot of sense why Democrats continue to uh, go back to their racist roots of pushing gun control on the masses, something that stems from early racist Democrats wanting to take guns out of the hands of minorities so they couldn't defend themselves. Racist white Democrats, that's where gun laws started. I didn't write the history. That's just the facts. Because, of course, when you don't want people to have their freedoms, well, that's how you're going to feel about things. 
So in 1968, due to a perceived unrest amongst the rabble-rousing youth, they said, look, we don't want them being able to buy a handgun until they're 21. Now, you could still, this is where it gets weird, right? So you could still buy a gun, possess a gun, own a gun, a handgun over the age of 18, but younger than 21, as long as you didn't purchase that gun from a licensed FFL dealer. So you could buy a gun from uh, a gun show. If the person's not a licensed FFL dealer, you could buy a gun off a friend. You could get a gun from your parents, a handgun. And that's the way it's generally, well, that's, that's the way it's generally existed. And I believe in what, 92, there was a gun law passed to clear that up to make it more uh, obvious. Then recently in 20, what, 21, 22, 2022, I think when the safer, maybe 23, when the safer Kentucky, it was, it was 2022, when the safer communities act passed in the federal government, well, now it added a 10 day waiting period for any gun. If you're under 21 long gun or handgun, and this was being driven by the, this idea that we need to do this because young people are just committing all kinds of mass shootings with legally purchased guns. Uh, a fact that is not a fact at all, but completely and utterly made up. You may remember, for those who've listened to the show longer than a few months, uh, when I was covering the car hearing, the Crisis Aversion Rights Retention Act, Whitney Westerfield's K uh, Kentucky State Senator's attempt at passing a red flag law here in Kentucky. Now, these are people who were given an assignment. They had people testifying about why they supported this bill and why the bill needed to pass. And they were given the assignment to make sure that they told and, and spoke about stories, heart-wrenching stories, to try to convince others that this was a needed thing, that, that encroaching on the rights, Second Amendment rights of Kentuckians was needed for safety reasons. But yet, despite the fact that they prepped, prepared, they had months to pick out their stories and get their witnesses together, not Literally, a single story, a single story that was told at this car hearing about horrific events involving mass shootings would have been prevented by a red flag law here in Kentucky because everybody who's had a story to tell about something horrific happening, generally speaking, the person either had bought the gun illegally or if they had bought the gun legally that red flag laws wouldn't kick in and much the same way if we go back to those same stories the most heart-wrenching stories that people in kentucky could think of to explain why we need harsher gun laws in kentucky not a single one was perpetrated by a person between the ages of 18 and 21 who purchased their gun legally in fact it wouldn't be illegal for a person between the age of 18 and 21 to own a firearm. Remember, actually, it's not even illegal in the state of Kentucky for a person between the ages of 18 and 21 to open carry a handgun. So you can get a gun, perhaps gifted to you from your father, let's say, if you're between the ages of 18 and 21, or just purchase a gun from a private individual, and then you can open carry that same gun here in the state of Kentucky, not a problem. But the moment you throw your shirt on, over it, under Kentucky law currently, this becomes illegal. Now, recently, uh, in 2021, a federal lawsuit was filed against the state of Tennessee arguing that their 21-year-old age limit for firearm possession was unconstitutionally uh, deprived young adults of their rights to possess a handgun as part of the settlement. 
The Tennessee's attorney general subsequently agreed not to enforce current law and allow people as young as 18 to legally possess a gun. So you can open carry a handgun if you're under 21 here in Kentucky. You can purchase one, just not from an FFL dealer, which literally, I mean, this when I'm describing these laws, it's causing tons of headaches, right? It just already as I'm describing it, all these different places. And then recently because of a federally passed law that if you're under 21 it's a 10-day waiting period no matter where you live many gun stores and you can walk into some and they'll point to you uh especially some of the smaller ones won't even sell long guns now to people under the age of 21. and so you're just pushing more and more individuals to purchase firearms through different ways either have their parent uh, purchase them a firearm as a gift. They purchase a firearm from uh, a, a friend that's over 21, neighbor, uh, a person they know that's selling guns. Uh, maybe they go to you know something like court days. They can buy guns there. There's no way you can reasonably regulate that either without encroaching on the Second Amendment. Very important thing. And so you run into a situation. How many kids between the ages of 18 and 21 are committing acts without illegal guns already? Of course they are. Of course they are. If a, a, a person between the ages of 18 and 21 want to commit a crime with a gun, they can get one. So all you're doing right now in Kentucky by making it illegal to conceal carry a, far, a firearm between the ages of 18 and 21 is encroaching on the constitutional rights of 18 to 21 year olds ability to conceal carry a firearm. Open carry a gun. Well, that's okay to do. And sometimes people would argue open carrying guns would make you an immediate target in a situation where you need to defend yourself. However, concealed carrying a gun, what's objectively speaking, if a person between the ages of 18 and 21 is going to come in and commit a crime, whether or not they're concealed carry legal, they're not going to care. <laughs> they're not going to care about you. They're going to carry the gun however they want to. And so all you're doing is affecting law abiding citizens and stopping them from being able to express their rights, their rights to carry firearms, protect themselves. And what's, what's odd is the pushback on this. They point to, oh, you know, young kids, everything else. Kids that are over the age of 18, but under 21 are allowed to go serve in the military. They're allowed to vote. They're allowed to make a lot of decisions for themselves. They're allowed to drive, obviously, on their own. They're allowed to hunt on their own. At the age of 16, you're allowed to hunt on your own. So it really becomes a quite obvious and straightforward point that these loopholes are meant to do nothing but encroach upon those who seek to follow the law. That's it. That's all they're doing. Because if you, if you can carry a gun, I mean, under 18, you're allowed to have a long gun. Not only that. But when we look at the, the handgun side of things and we look at the gun laws overall, we see so often these Democrats trying to go after the long guns. They try to go after AR-15s, everything else. Well, good luck concealed carrying an AR-15. It's kind of a difficult thing to do. But you can open carry one all day legally <laughs> under the age of 21 over 18. Now, of course, a lot of Democrats sort of respond by saying, well, you know, that just means you need to make open carrying illegal. We need to tighten it down. Nobody should be allowed to carry a gun, which is the honest truth. And, and this is the point. And, and this is the same as abortion arguments. It's the same as all of it, is that it has nothing to do with the original fact. The fact of the matter is either you support the Second Amendment or you don't. 
or you don't. Either you believe in abortion or you don't. And any encroachment one way or the other is nothing but proxy fights in order to try to gain ground for your eventual takedown. For those who support the Second Amendment, it's about saying, yes, there should be no restrictions to people who are law-abiding citizens to carry, own, and possess firearms over the age of 18. That is our point. There should be no exemptions to that. And for those who hate the Second Amendment, that hate your rights to own guns, they want to take that away from you completely. And these types of fights on laws and claiming it's just common sense, we've dug into Senator Neal's bill. He, he of course, had proposed a bill or proposed a bill this session on safe gun storage would essentially would make it all but illegal for you to basically, in this modern world, carry a gun or own a gun because of the restrictions it would place on how you have to store said gun, regardless if you live alone or with kids or anything. It's, it's all about making it more difficult for you. And that's where we have to say, no, we will not give up ground. That's why Mitch McConnell, allowing that Safer Communities Act to pass in 2022 was such a big mistake because you're seceding the point by saying, okay, let's move the age of owning a gun up to the, 21. You're giving up the point. And, and, and then what? They move it to 22, 23 until nobody has a gun at all. That's, that's the, what we're up against. That's the problem. So I'd say good on Savannah Maddox for passing House Bill 259. That's a bill you should be demanding your House representative support and your state senator support. Because you know what? People under the age of 18, over 21, have every right to defend themselves with a concealed carry handgun the same as the rest of us. Well, coming up after this, liberal school leaders mad about a lack of a wage increase for teachers. We'll talk about how much they contradict themselves after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooper Show. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. And you're back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics, obviously coming from constitutional conservative perspective. So uh, those who listen to the show know over the past week or so, I've been talking about our budget, this massive 71, 74, sorry, billion dollar budget, a full 30 billion more than prior year, 20 billion more than the subsequent year, this, this massive budget. And despite the massive increase in spending, well, the liberals in the state just aren't happy, especially those running our K through 12 education. They're hopping, hopping upset. Now, they're so upset for two reasons. One, they're pointing to a lack of uh, universal funding or universal pre-K funding. You know, this has been a big push of Bashir to make sure that everybody gets into the public school system one year earlier because he thinks that's really going to be what makes the big difference. But obviously, um, the fact that when you're in eighth grade, our average Kentucky school student isn't even proficient in math and reading, I don't think will be massively changed by 
this idea that, well, if we get them a year earlier for four hours a day, five days a week, we're going to make a big old difference. But that's the kind of crud that Bashir is peddling you. And as we look at some of the stats when it comes to education, something that recently friend of the show, Dr. John Guerin, professor emeritus at University of Kentucky, professor in, of uh, economics, recently put out a study on Kentucky schools pointing to the fact that as we have funded more and more, we haven't seen an actual increase in student performance to coincide with that increased funding. We've just seen gigantic and bloated spending. We'll, we'll talk about why here in a second. But however, these school leaders are pretty upset about another thing, not just the lack of universal pre-K, but the fact that there wasn't a dedicated raise for public school educators. Now, Bashir, has been promising when he first ran for office. He promised a 4% raise, and then midway through, it was a 6% raise. And then this last time he was running for office, he was promising teachers an 11% across-the-board raise. But there's one problem with that, is that it's unconstitutional. According to our state constitution and then subsequent rulings on the meaning of the state constitution, you can't do that. However, this didn't stop the Kentucky Education Association president, Eddie Campbell, from issuing the following statement. Despite the fact that the legislature has acknowledged the seriousness of the continuing teacher and classified school employees shortage in our state, the glaring omission in the House budget proposed is a dedicated raise for public school educators. He's very upset that public school educators aren't getting the raise. Now, of course, they pull the old switcher Rooney because even if the legislature said, okay, fine, here's a raise just for teachers, they'd be hopping mad about that too. You'll remember Bashir when he's peddling this 11% raise, it's not just for teachers, but every public school employee across the board in Kentucky. But why is this unconstitutional? Well, the Kentucky Education Association and actually Eddie Campbell himself can give us that argument. This is from KY Policy in 2020, actually September 2nd of 2020. This is uh, from an article you can find on kypolicy.com. And uh, here's a quote. Now, this is from the deputy director, but also Eddie Campbell follows this up as well. But this is from deputy director uh, Anna Bowman. Anna Bowman, deputy director, says, research shows that adequate and equitable school funding uh, closes achievement gaps and boosts student outcomes. Actually, I don't know what research. Once again, I was just talking about John Guerin's research and he showed his work. That's not the case. But anyways, Kentucky was once on the front lines of education reform that creates success for students no matter where they live. But we've been backsliding. As a result, we're starting off the school year with the twin crisis of a global pandemic and a level of inequity nearing what we as a state consider unconstitutional. Now, what she's referencing there is a state uh, Supreme Court ruling saying that because the state constitution calls for us to fund common schools, that if there's an inequitable funding, well, that's unconstitutional, meaning that if one students in one area are in one school district is receiving, you know, eight thousand dollars in educational funding in total, but then another district is receiving twelve or thirteen thousand, well, that can be considered unconstitutional. And what they're talking about is the fact that it's not that the school that that the state is funding individual school districts at a different rate. No, not at all. 
In fact, the state itself, the SEEK formula itself is issuing those fundings at a per pupil basis. It's actually very quote unquote equal and equitable. Everybody gets the same $4,400 a year per student. No, no, no. See, the problem becomes is that you have districts like uh, the Jefferson County Public Schools up in Louisville spending over $20,000 a student, some of it coming from the state, some of it from the federal government, and uh, a lot of it coming from the local people being taxed. And then you compare that with some of the smaller counties or lower counties. I think, I believe the lowest spending per student uh, in Kentucky in a school district is 12000 per student, an $8,000 gap, one that they say would be unconstitutional. Now, in the same article, aware of what's being said, Eddie Campbell talks up and says, years of budget cuts have led to larger class sizes, outdated resources in technology, aging transportation, custodial equipment, reductions in classes like art, music, dance, agriculture, and technology, and aging and crumbling infrastructure. And this was all before COVID-19. Now, public schools are faced with additional costs related to COVID-19, transportation, technology, internet cleaning, sanitizing equipment for rooms, and buildings of any personal protective equipment. So in the same article where they're saying that the inequitable funding is unconstitutional, the, the Kentucky Education Association is saying that President Eddie Campbell's involved in that, quoting that. So he's aware of what his deputy director said in that same article about unconstitutional spending levels. But yet, despite that, despite that, Eddie Campbell goes on to make an argument that we must give an 11% raise across the board to our teachers. But here's the problem. That would only further the quote unquote, in your minds, unconstitutionality of inadequate funding. Why? Because what one district pays their teachers will be massively different than what another district pays their teachers. To do a 11% across the board might mean that a district like JCP, uh, Jefferson County Public Schools is receiving a lot more per student funding than some of these smaller school districts, which are not paying teachers as much. It's unconstitutional. It's not allowed. They're literally upset that the budget doesn't include something that they themselves acknowledge creates an unconstitutional situation. But yet they don't care because all they want is their money. That's all they want. They just want their dollar dollar bills. And why do they need that? Well, they have this massive administrative structure. Additionally, as well, these administrators have been brought on and brought on because they've decided that schools have to do more than they used to. No longer are schools just about teaching, reading, math, science, you know, the things like when we went to school, no, they have to do much more. Why? I don't know. But they have taken this on themselves. And you can see, see this rearing its ugly head in another bill being proposed, which would mandate that school lunches be at least 30 minutes. That's that going to lunch, you get at least 30 minutes for lunch. A lot of districts are only allowing 20 minutes. And this has caused uh, a big hoopla amongst a lot of groups, especially amongst the schools, because, well, the people of Kentucky are realizing that they're only giving them 20 minutes for lunch in the first place. And the defense of this is that schools are doing more. Well, what are you doing? Because despite all the money we give you in funding, our math, your reading, your basics are failing more and more, but yet you can't stop spending money on things like DEI, administrative bloat, 
Because you've decided it's not just your job to educate, but it's also your job to indoctrinate. It's also your job to push your social agenda. It's also your job to act as the cabinet for health and family services. It's also your job to be psychologists. But there's bills taking aim at this in the public universities, but not in K-12 education. We'll take a look at that. After this short break, you're listening to The Andrew Kubrider Show. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. Conservative. Constitutional. It's The Andrew Kubrider Show. Keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And you're back with the Andrew Kubretter show. Before the break, we're talking about uh, a bill had been proposed to mandate that schools allow at least 30 minutes for lunches at K through 12 education, at which point many parents and citizens realized that these kids had been only getting 20 minutes for lunch before. And this had launched full on protection from the public school institutions to defend this crazy practice. And one of the defenders of this on Twitter uh, Nima Brewer, who's part of the leadership for 120 AF or AFT 120 or whatever. It's a K Kentucky's school union, um, professional degenerate too, as well. If you ever happen to accidentally see one of her tweets, you would be, um, well, shocked that this person's involved with education at all with that potty mouth she has completely disgusting. Anyways, she comes on to say, well, you know, you don't understand. You see, schools are doing more than they ever have done before. But yet that is the problem. Why is it that schools feel that it's their job to be the mental health experts in the community, the Cabinet for Health and Family Services experts? I mean, common things we hear is, no, kids have to go to school because that's the only place they get a meal. That's something we hear all the time. Uh, and this concept that schools have to be the one providing meals have only expanded. In fact, in our state budget this year is $1.5 million to match federal funds to give $40 a month to every student on an EBT card that qualifies for free or reduced lunch. Now, this doesn't mean that they um, themselves, their family has to qualify. No, if a certain number of kids in a district uh, qualify for this, the entire district qualifies. It creates this weird situation where you have kids that are arriving to school in Porsches getting free lunches from the government. And in order to build up this idea of government resilience, the federal government is rolling out a plan to continue to provide $40 a month to these kids for their school lunches over the course of the summer. A crazy program. We shouldn't have given $1.5 million to it. Why? Well, one, we already have SNAP and other benefits that are available to families that are based upon the number of kids you have. If you can't afford to feed your kid, well, then you need to be, well, food stamps provides that. What, why is it that any kid in America is going hungry? It has to do with the fact of any kids at all. Any defense of this would be saying that, well, the parents are spending the food stamp money elsewhere and it's not going to the kids. So it sounds like we're wasting money in our food stamp program if that's the case. But of course, nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to point out the fact that the problem has nothing to do with kids. Actually, we need more money to feed children. The problem is we have cruddy parents because, of course, the government can't address the fact you have cruddy parents because they're the ones creating them. They're the ones creating a cadre of people that are relying upon the government 
in order to exist, that don't know how to fend for themselves, that turn to daddy government to take care of them, that, that have never learned how to stand on their own two feet, that live off the welfare system and ingraining that into their kids moving forward because the government continues to push the BS, to continue to push it. But no, we can't address that. So instead, we're going to give these kids $40 a month while their parents are driving them around in Porsches because that is called equity. But they are doing too much. And the fact that our public universities have taken upon themselves to do things like somehow raise the kids, I'm not kidding. When you sit there and you're talking about things like, well, we got to make sure the kids are mentally uh, uh, belonging and all these other things. That's, that's a parent's job to make sure a kid is well adjusted to society. It isn't the job of the schools. Now we've seen recent aims at this at the uh, public universities in one K through 12 bill, but Jennifer Decker recently filed another DEI bill to address the DEI uh, administration within public universities. Basically saying the bill would uh, end all these DEI and administrative positions at colleges and universities. Great, awesome. You know, uh, Decker says, according to her research, this would eliminate almost 172 jobs at the University of Louisville alone. However, while we're talking about this on K through 12 education, and while we have seen a bill out of the Senate proposed at taking an aim at DEI and K through 12 schools, we haven't seen nearly the same level of legislation or attention paid to our K through 12 schools. As we speak, the Kentucky Department of Education spends hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not, well, actually millions a year, according to their contracts, on DEI initiatives. In fact, the Kentucky Department of Education has its own DEI department, but yet nobody is taking an aim as of now at banning and getting rid of that. Instead, they're looking at these public universities, which is so odd in a way when you think about it, because of course, Everybody or, or the vast, vast majority of people are going to K through 12 public education, but actually the majority of Kentuckians aren't going to college in the first place. But yet for some reason, it's public universities that are getting the attention instead of the indoctrination facilities that have leaked down into our K through 12 public education, just not getting that same attention. Interesting what's driving this, of course, part of it is to do lobbyists, part of this is to do with the fact that uh, there's not many advocates on the other side of K through 12 education other than the people themselves. There's nobody real financially involved, but we'll see what they can manage to do to address that. Hopefully we see something. But just to, to illustrate though, how we've gotten this far and how DEI has really just soaked into everything, we can look at this article from the Herald Leader titled, Proposed Bill, No More DEI Offices, Differential Treatment, of students at KY public colleges. Remember, though, the DEI facility still exists, our K through 12 schools, but hey, you know, at least the universities are getting taken care of. And I'm, I'm only so frustrated by that because we continue to fund DEI things on our K through 12 schools. And, and I've called this out last week, millions of dollars just in our budgets alone, conservative budgets being line itemed in order to encourage our teachers to go to DEI trainings, but yet we're trying to ban it. I mean, give me a break here. But anyways, what, what I wanna point out though from this article is this was wrote by uh, a dual article wrote by Austin Horn and Alex uh, Kisto, I believe is how you say her last name. It's, it's harder to, I've, I see her name all the time. She's one of the political reporters at Herald Leader, Austin Horn and her, but I've never actually had to say her name out loud. She's, she's a little more to the left, 
I think Austin tries to be a little more middle of the road. But what's interesting is through this article, uh, they quote Jennifer Decker many a times, her public statements, discriminatory concepts, so on and so forth. But going through this article, they never once reference an actual statement that they got from the colleges or universities. It's almost like they felt they didn't have to. Let me give you an example. Um, so they, they talk about news releases from Decker and everything else. So the paragraph above this says, I'm reading from the article, in a news release accompanying the bill, Decker called DEI initiatives misguided and said that they made colleges more divided, more expensive, and less tolerant. Diversity, equity, and inclusion offices on campuses are designed to support marginalized or underrepresented student populations by fostering a more inclusive college experience, college administrators and experts say. There is no quotes in there anywhere. This is also not an opinion article, okay? So in this article, they reference college administrators and experts with no quotes because they didn't have to. They didn't bother to go try to get a statement about this, of what the problem is with the individual bills. They didn't go get an quote unquote expert to talk about these things because they believe in them themselves. That's the problem is that this is soaked in so much that DEI is a good and awesome and great thing that when we have political reporters writing about the bills that Kentucky is proposing, they don't even have to go get people on the other side. They are the other side. They know exactly where to go. And this theme continues. Right after that paragraph comes this one. The University of Kentucky's Office of Institutional Diversity, for example, says on its website, it serves to enhance the diversity and inclusivity of our university community through the recruitment and retention of increasingly diverse population of faculty, administrators, staff, and students. And UK does this, the office says, by implementing initiatives that provide rich diversity-related experiences for all to help ensure their success in an interconnected world. Now that's them quoting from the website. They didn't go ask anybody. They didn't go ask this expert to say, hey, read through her bill, what's the problems with it? No, they're just quoting from the website because they're making the arguments themselves, the authors, against it. Because when you go on to read the next statement coming from Decker, arguing back against them, the authors, now, it's a quote from her news release. And it just goes to show this has ingrained in this thought process. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning, that we cannot allow ourselves to give up ground. It goes back to Maddox's gun bill. We can't give up ground. But us constantly giving up ground on these issues and pointing at public university, instead of just pointing at even K through 12 education and talking about it, has caused us to have a cadre of, in this case, media reporters that don't even need to go get anybody to argue back against Decker's bill because they'll do it themselves. Well, y'all, that's what we got time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. If there's ever a more obvious reason to be listening to the show, sharing it with others, it's that story right there. We'll be back here tomorrow with another day, another show. Have a great rest of your day.